Well, dear friends, our text this afternoon as we hear from the living God in his word is Psalm 80. As Deacon Marion mentioned last week, we are considering five different psalms in the five Sundays of August. And because psalms are all different from one another, each of the five we'll look at has its own contained message, but they weren't randomly chosen. The psalms we're looking at this month do have one thing in common. In some way, they all have to do with the Lord's salvation. And as we'll see, I think the Psalms have a broad view of what salvation entails, both individually and corporately, in the present and in the future. And yet one thing that's universally clear in the Psalms is that salvation is something that can only be realized, that can only be brought about by the Lord the covenant God of Israel, the sovereign God who had rescued his people from Egypt, brought them into the promised land and made sweeping promises regarding the future. Promises so wonderful, in fact, that they're ultimately fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. Now, interpreting and preaching the Psalms is tricky for a number of reasons, but perhaps the greatest challenge we face when dealing with the Psalms has to do with what horizon we have in view. Because Psalms were written in a certain time and they have a historical rootedness. And sometimes we can pinpoint what that is. Other times we can't. But even when we can, what we often find in the Psalms is that they address not only the immediate historical moment, but also have far reaching implications for the future as well. Psalms are therefore often prophetic, as Deacon Marion also said last week in her sermon on Psalm 22. In a broad sense, that includes the fact that in the Psalms, the people of Israel often look ahead in hope to a time of peace and prosperity, of safety and security, to salvation. Because, of course, the Psalms are full of the recognition that that hoped-for salvation was not their present experience. Oh, there are glimpses of it. There are moments of miraculous deliverance. There are shouts of praise for the way the Lord has saved individuals and saved his people in the past, even. But as we'll see this morning, there is also a recognition that ultimately salvation is a future reality, a reality wrapped up in the fulfillment of all of God's promises for his people and for the whole world, which is why again and again we find that the Psalms ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. Now this morning we're in Psalm 80, and it would be best if you have a Bible open there so you can follow along. If you want to go out and grab one, you're welcome to do that. There are some on the table. We're going to look at Psalm 80 in four parts. Part one is verses one to three, which is the opening prayer for deliverance. Part two is verses four to seven, focusing on the Lord's present anger. 
Part three is verses eight to 15. Never mind how the ESV divides the stanzas. Verses eight to 15, focusing on the Lord's past mercy. And part four is verses 16 to 19, the closing prayer for deliverance. So there's the opening prayer for deliverance and there's the closing prayer for deliverance and between them, the two sections which are mainly about the Lord's present anger and then the Lord's past mercy. And what I think we'll see is that in the course of this psalm, the psalmist in fact develops what it is that the Lord needs to do to deliver his people. What the Lord's salvation ultimately must entail for his people to be saved. Now, before we get into the details of the text, just so that you can see how the psalm breaks down into these four sections, you can see it structurally, because the key is that at the end of each section, there's a refrain. Three times in verses three and seven and 19, which is the end of parts one and two and four, we have the words, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. At the end of the third part, which I think is in verse 14, we have what I'll suggest is a variation on that refrain. As the psalmist says there in verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. We begin then with the opening prayer for deliverance in verses one to three. Let's read those verses again. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now Psalm 80 is a lament of the people of Israel. It is an anguished cry to God from people who are in deep despair, pleading with God to act to save them. And you heard Josiah read the Psalm earlier. Enemies are mocking them. They're attacking their homes and their farms. Their towns are being burned even. Relatives and friends are dying. Why is all this happening? How long will it last? Well, you'll notice how verse two of the psalm mentions Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Now, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, you know Ephraim and Manasseh were prominent tribes in the Northern Kingdom, which itself was called Israel, as opposed to the Southern Kingdom, which was called Judah. Samaria, the capital of the Northern Kingdom, was in the territory of Ephraim. Ephraim was a powerful tribe, which, along with its brother tribe Manasseh, dominated the center of the Promised Land. But if you know the history, you also know that Ephraim and Manasseh, along with eight others of the 12 tribes, would be destroyed and sent into exile by the mighty Assyrian Empire, which finally conquered the north the Northern Kingdom in 722 BC. 
So most scholars think that the fact that the psalm here mentions Ephraim and Manasseh by name means that it was originally responding to Israel's persecution by the armies of Assyria. That slowly but surely the nation of Israel was being swallowed up by this pagan nation. It was not a rapid conquest. Assyrian raids began in 732 BC and lasted a whole decade. That is the historical context, it seems, in which Psalm 80 was composed. That's the context in which we read the pleas of verses one to three, as the psalmist boldly calls upon the Lord to wake up. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, pay attention. Listen to our cries. Even as you heard the cries of your people in the past in Egypt, listen and act. Are you not the shepherd of Israel? The psalmist seems to be asking. In the ancient Near East generally, it was kings who were usually called shepherds, even outside of Israelite literature. And we sometimes find that in the Psalms, of, the Psalms of the Bible, Israel's king is called a shepherd as well. But here, the psalmist recognizes that for Israel, it is the Lord God who's their ultimate shepherd king. He's the one who leads Joseph like a flock. Now, Joseph was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh. So here again, that seems to be a reference to the northern tribes of which the sons of Joseph were the most significant. We sense the psalmist's dilemma. If the people of Israel are the flock who relate to the Lord as their shepherd and the Lord is the one who leads them, how can this be happening? Where are those green pastures and quiet waters of Psalm 23? What is this shepherd doing with his flock? You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth, the psalmist pleads at the end of verse one. Now that's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, of course. The cherubim were the angel-like winged figures that Moses was told to put on top of the mercy seat on top of the Ark. But the point is that the Ark represented God's throne on earth, as we discussed when we studied Samuel, if you were with us then. The Ark was an earthly symbol of God's heavenly throne. And the point is that the Ark was always supposed to be in the midst of the people, symbolizing that God, the King of heaven, who has heavenly armies at his disposal, was with them and would lead his armies to fight for them. Psalm 99 verse one helps us with the intended meaning here, I think. The psalmist says, Psalm 99 verse one, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. So when the psalmist in Psalm 80 verse one asks the Lord to shine forth, well, he means for the Lord to do that in his capacity as the divine kingly warrior who will lead his armies to fight for his people. Stir up your might, verse two says, and come to save us. 
It's all to say, hear us and act. Leave your heavenly throne and shine forth in splendor. At which point we come to the first instance of the refrain of this psalm in verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And at this point in the psalm, the most straightforward way to read that plea of verse 3 is in keeping with verses 1 and 2. That the psalmist here likely means restore the fortunes of your people. Release us from our suffering. Restore us to the more favorable circumstances we enjoyed before. Shine forth in your mighty power. Lead your flock into green pastures once again. No doubt that is part of what's meant by the recurring refrain that appears first here in verse 3. But I do think there's more to it than just that. It seems there's an intentional ambiguity in the language that's used here that I think becomes more and more significant as the psalm continues. If you happen to have one of the black ESV Bibles that were on the table out there, or if you have your own and you can read print this small, there is a footnote there in verse 3. <laughs> Maybe if you can see it. And according to the footnote in the ESV Bible, instead of translating the verb here as restore us, it's possible that the translation should be turn us again. In fact, if you happen to have the older revised standard version, that is how they translated the Hebrew here. Turn us again, O God. And it's completely legitimate to translate it that way. The form of the command in Hebrew here can read that way. In fact, frequently it does describe turning or repentance in the Old Testament. In other words, the form of the verb here in verse 3 could mean... Cause us to repent, O God. Restore us to your covenant mercies, in other words. And if that's the intention, then the request here that God let his face shine on his people is perhaps clearly invoking the priestly covenant blessing of Numbers chapter 6. Numbers 6, beginning in verse 22, says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So as one commentator suggests, quote, the prayer, let thy face shine in verse three of Psalm 80, takes up the words of the ironic blessing, invoking not the blinding glory of verse 1b of the psalm, but the glow of kindness and friendship. So that within this opening prayer for deliverance, we have perhaps both aspects of the Lord's, the plea for the Lord's powerful deliverance of his people circumstantially, together with the plea to turn them again. 
As part two of the psalm makes clear, however, the people as a whole are quite far from the experience of blessing that seems to be described in verse three. Verses four to seven of the psalm focus on the Lord's present anger. Let's read them again. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Just as it is true that the God of hosts, the God who commands the heavenly armies, is the divine warrior who can marshal all the hosts of heaven to the aid of his people, so also can the Lord of hosts use the earthly hosts and armies to judge the nations, including his people. The psalmist recognizes Israel has felt the weight of his anger. Verse four literally says, how long will you smolder? How long will you smoke against the prayers of your people. The implication being that the people have been praying for some time, years even, but God has not saved them. Israel continues to suffer the attacks of the Assyrians. The psalmist knows that's not because God can't save them, this God is the God of hosts. This God is God Almighty. Nothing is too hard for this God. Why then has God not come through for them? Why in fact has God brought about all this suffering? That's what the psalmist says in verses five and six. Notice the use of the you pronoun here to refer to the Lord. You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink, the psalmist claims. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. According to these verses, the suffering of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians isn't some kind of accident of international politics. Rather, the psalmist's prayer is directed toward the almighty, all-powerful God who is the cause of their present suffering. Listen to how one author puts this, quote, the psalmist knows that their present suffering has not arisen out of accident or circumstance, nor indeed has their suffering resulted from divine inactivity. From the poet's perspective, Yahweh, the God of armies, has turned his might against his people rather than for them. For this reason and for this reason alone are the people experiencing their present humiliation. And then the same author goes on to say this, quote, there seems to be an implied acceptance that God was right to act in this way against the temporal good of his people and for their ultimate good, but the prayers of the refrain make it clear the poet believes that the people have now suffered enough. Indeed, suffering and sorrow had become a regular part of their daily routine. According to verse six, their neighbors scorned defenseless Israel. They fight over the spoils. Their enemies laugh among themselves and mock them. The shepherd has given his flock over to their enemies. 
soon Israel will be no more. And so in the depths of despair, they sound the refrain again, verse seven, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the same as the refrain was in verse three, except here they now address God as, O God of hosts, God of heavenly armies, God almighty. It seems to be a recognition that Israel has fallen so far that only an almighty God can save them, as he has in the past. And so in part three, the psalmist focuses on the Lord's past mercy as he begins to recount the good things God did for Israel in the past. Listen again here, beginning in verse eight. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Here in the face of their present catastrophe, the psalmist reviews the history of God's mercy towards his people. Verse eight returns us all the way to the Exodus and then the eventual entrance into the promised land. God here is pictured as a gardener and Israel, his people is a vine. And here again, just as Yahweh is the ultimate cause of his people's present distress, so his hand was behind her success in the past. Again, notice the psalmist's use of the you pronoun throughout this section again. You brought a vine out. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. The point is that the exodus and the conquest of Canaan was God's work. He was the one who made all these things possible. Israel's establishment in the land in the days before the coming exile was all due to the efforts of this warrior God in behalf of his flock. The vine filled the land, the end of verse nine says, and verses 10 and 11 are the poetic picture of that fact as the flourishing of the vine can be seen in every direction. The mountains in verse 10a, probably a reference to the Sinai mountain range in the south. The mighty cedars in verse 10b, likely a reference to the cedars of Lebanon in the north. The sea in verse 11a, most likely the Mediterranean in the west. The river would have been the Euphrates in the east. This is the days of David and Solomon that are in view here. When the vine filled the whole land, and there was at least briefly, if you remember 2 Samuel 8, <laughs> a period of justice and equity, of peace and prosperity. God had richly blessed them. But the memory of those blessings only further elevates the question in verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls? Now vineyards had stone fences around them to keep out destructive animals. 
So after reminding God that he first carefully built up his vineyard, now the psalmist accuses him of breaking down this protective wall with all the destructive consequences that that action would bring about. Why? Verse 12 asks. And yet there can be little doubt that the psalmist understood why. The image of Israel as a vine is not unique to Psalm 80. It's not, that un it's, 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 it's not an uncommon image in the Old Testament. And crucially to our interpretation here, the image of Israel as a vine is a metaphor that becomes synonymous with the failure of Israel and of Judah to keep the covenant. Ezekiel chapter 17 and Isaiah chapter 5 are two key texts that you could look at in that regard with the picture of the vine being Israel. We're not going to cover both of them, but let's consider Isaiah 5 briefly. Isaiah 5, debatable, but perhaps was written about this time. And I think you'll see the point as you listen to parts of verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah chapter 5. This is Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, the prophet begins. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. In other words, grapes that are no good for wine. <laughs> And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. And then verse seven of Isaiah five explains, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he, the Lord looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, verse 12 of Psalm 80 asks why, but as I read it, the psalmist's choice of metaphor here is itself an answer to that question. The fate of the vine resulted from the unrighteous fruit borne by the people. That's why the psalmist knows the only hope is that God himself would turn again towards his people. Look now at verse 14 of Psalm 80, which is the variation on the refrain that's found at the end of the other three sections. It uses the same Hebrew verb as the other refrains do. But this time, it's the psalmist's forceful prayer, not for God to turn them, but for God himself to turn around, to turn again, 
to see his people, to return in power, to dwell among his covenant community. Verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. The question why has been replaced by an appeal for God to relent. The psalmist knows why the people face catastrophe and he knows where the only hope for the future is to be found. It's in the same Lord whose anger has been long smoldering against them. And it all reminds me of another place in scripture where this question why is then followed by a plea for God to turn from his anger towards his people. I don't know for sure that the psalmist had this in view, but it's what came to my mind in Exodus chapter 32, where following Israel's apostasy with the golden calf, if you remember that harrowing chapter, Moses also asked the question, why? In Exodus 32, verse 11, Moses asks, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Only, like the psalmist, Moses doesn't ask that question because he just doesn't know the reason why. I mean, the Lord had just told him, in Exodus 32, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And so, again, here, just like the psalmist, Moses, in Exodus 32, knows that there's only one hope for the people God himself has to turn. And so using the same verb that occurs in Psalm 80, Moses pleads with the Lord in Exodus 32, verse 12. Turn, he says. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. You see, I think that like Moses before him, the psalmist here knows why the people face destruction, and yet he prays for God to turn because he knows salvation is only to be found in appealing to God's mercy. He pleads with the Lord to look down from heaven and see, to have regard for this vine. Literally, he asks the Lord to attend to it, attend to the vine, but as one Old Testament scholar reminds us, the request for God to attend to his vine may not have been just a simple request for God to change the course of events immediately. This scholar writes, quote, when Yahweh attends to something, this often implies punishing wrongdoing. I will attend to the altars of Bethel, Yahweh said through the prophet Amos. But Yahweh also attends in order to bless, deliver, or restore. The supplicants in Psalm 80 look Yahweh boldly in the face and urge that kind of attention, end quote. There is a sense then in which the psalmist here is praying 
do what must be done, Lord, whatever that might be, to bring the restoration of your people, your vine. Which brings us then to the closing prayer for deliverance beginning in verse 16. Only at this point, it would seem the destruction of Israel is so certain that it can be spoken of as having already happened. They have burned it with fire, the psalmist laments. They, that is the enemies, the Assyrians, have cut it down. That is the vine has been cut down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. With the destruction of Israel now imminent, the psalmist anticipates what is to come. The vine is being destroyed. And interestingly, if you happen to have an NIV Bible, the NIV translates the second half of verse 16 to mean something somewhat different. Where the ESV here has the psalmist cursing Israel's enemies, may they perish at the rebuke of your face, the NIV understands it to mean that the ones perishing aren't Israel's enemies, but the people of Israel themselves. At your rebuke, your people perish, the NIV says. And they would. The final defeat of the northern kingdom of Israel would come in the year 722 BC at the hands of the Assyrians. And those who didn't perish would be exiled. So what then are we to make of all this? Did the prayers of the psalmist just go unanswered? Or would the restoration for which he and the people prayed yet be fulfilled far in the future, beyond even the exile of God's people? Though the interpretation of verse 17 of Psalm 80 is a matter of significant debate, I'd like to suggest that it's there that we have our answer. Verse 17 says, but, <laughs> if the NIV is right, at your rebuke, your people perish. But, verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Now, while it's certainly possible here to read the man and the son of man language in verse 17, strictly as a reference to Israel as God's people, God's son, I go with the interpreters here who see a more specific messianic intention in those words. That following the declaration in verse 16, I think the NIV is right, following the declaration in verse 16 that the vine has been burned and cut down, I think there's a shift here. As the psalmist now focuses on the man, the one, the point seems to be that the restoration of God's people will come about ultimately through the man of your right hand. But who is that person at God's right hand? 
Now in the Psalms, God's right hand is associated with Israel's king. And in this Psalm too, the prayer here for the one at God's right hand refers to the king. The psalmist seems to be praying for a restoration of the line of David. But I think we can say more than just that. We spent quite a lot of time in Psalm 110 in our study of Hebrews over the last couple of years. Perhaps you recall that in Psalm 110 verse one, the Psalm says of Israel's king, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And we've talked about how in the New Testament, Jesus says that this person who is told to sit at my right hand, this person is the Messiah, but that that Messiah is more than just the son of David. And indeed here in Psalm 80, that same king is called the son of man in the second part of verse 17. Well, the son of man language also appears in the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel writes, I saw with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages shall serve him. Jesus Christ often used the title son of man to refer to himself. In fact, he claimed to be the son of man of Daniel. At Jesus' trial in Matthew 26, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Brothers and sisters, what I think is that the restoration of God's people for which the psalmist so earnestly pleaded would not come through the Lord delivering them from the hands of the Assyrians. It would come through the hands of their messianic king. As I read it, the prayer of Psalm 80 verse 17, for the hand of the Lord to be on the man of your right hand would be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Jesus is the person at God's right hand, even today. In Ephesians 1 verse 20, Paul says, God demonstrated his great might in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. For as we saw clearly in Hebrews, it would be through Jesus that the covenant promises of the Lord for his people and the ultimate answer of the psalmist's prayer to turn us again that we might be saved would be forever realized. Then we shall not turn back from you, the psalmist vows in verse 18 of Psalm 80. Then when you have done your great work of restoration in your people such that they shall not turn again, Give us life, the psalmist says, and we will call upon your name. Call upon your name in worship 
and in witness and in lifestyle. What the psalmist envisions here is a people who will seek the Lord's engagement with every aspect of their life and of their being. And here again, his prayer is answered in Jesus Christ. In John 10 verses 10 and 11, Jesus, the Messianic King said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The psalmist knows the people need the restoration of the Lord to live this way. And so in verse 19, at the end of the psalm, we have the final recurrence of Psalm 80's refrain, restore us, turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Now you may notice here that it's the strongest of the refrains in the psalm. The first one in verse three was addressed, O God. The second and third refrains in verses seven and 11 were addressed, O God of hosts. Now this final appeal in verse 19 is addressed, O Lord God of hosts, Yahweh. Because it is a prayer addressed to Israel's faithful covenant God. The psalmist knows he will come through for them and he did. For at the birth of Mary's child, the angel would tell Joseph to name the baby Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we live on the other side of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ all of which has made possible the salvation for which the psalmist ultimately longed in Psalm 80. To the psalmist's plea to let your face shine, we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 that God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And yet even for us, final salvation remains a future reality. As much as the Israelites needed the Lord God of hosts to hear and see them in their time of distress, so do we in whatever circumstances the sovereign God may bring into our lives because it is only with God's help that his people will be able to be faithful to him. Our lives of calling upon his name will only be possible as we depend on the life he gives us. Which is why I don't think it's any coincidence at all that Jesus, the source of that life and of our salvation would say in John 15 verse five, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What else can we pray but what the psalmist has taught us? 
Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.